Thank you so much for joining us for this message. Whether you're watching for the first time or you're simply catching up on a message that you missed, we're so glad that you are connecting to God's Word today. Our hope is that as you listen to the message, you'll experience a real encounter with God. Please consider giving financially to support God's work through our ministry. You will find several options to do that by clicking on the word Give in the menu on our website at kentwoodcommunitychurch.com. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, wasn't that funny, Christian? That was funny. funny. All right. Well, you know what? Someone told me a joke earlier this week, so I, I have to say this joke. I just have to say this joke. So there's this cantankerous man that dies, and he goes to hell. And so in hell, Satan comes over to him and says, is it hot enough for you? How you feeling? And he says, I'm okay. It's like uh, Florida in February. I mean, it's no big deal. So Satan says, what? So he goes and he turns up the heat a little bit more. Then he comes back to the guy and he says, how you feeling now? And he says, eh, you know, it's kind of like Arizona in May. So Satan is like, what? I'm going to turn everything up. So he turns everything up, and the guy is not even breaking a sweat. And so he says, how you feeling now? He says, I'm fine. This is, this is no problem. So Satan just gets mad, and he goes, and he turns everything down. Then the guy comes over to him, and he's got icicles on his nose, and he's walking. And he says, hey, I got one thing to ask you. And Satan says, what? And he says, did the Detroit Lions win the Super Bowl yet? <laughs> Come on, y'all. Y'all got to give it to me. You got to give it to me. You know, and it's extra sweet because I'm from Chicago. Come on. Come on. Now, I know some people there are saying, you know what? You know where you can go, Curtis. But I got a news flash. I cannot go to hell because Satan still has that restraining order against me. Amen? Amen, amen. amen. So I have Christian up here. He's going to read with me. Um, as always, please stand for the reading of the word. We are coming out of 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 and, and uh, NLT version. So I will read first, and then you will read with Christian after me, okay? So let's start. For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. Verse 5. And God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into a heap of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. Verse 7, I'm sorry. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. Verse 9. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. He is especially hard on those who follow their own twisted and sexual desires and who despise authority. Lord Jesus, I ask that you will... Empty me out as a vessel before your people. I pray that you put in me your words and your words only. I pray, Lord, that it may fall on fertile ground, Lord, and that the body of Christ may be uh, exhorted, Lord Jesus, and elevated. So, Lord, we thank you for this time and this opportunity. We ask these and all blessings in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Christian. You're welcome. You may be seated. So... As we look at Peter, 2 Peter, we need to understand that in verse, in uh, chapter 1, Peter was talking to the church in Asia Minor, and he was really encouraging them and saying, hey, I've heard some great things about you. 
Keep on continue to grow in your faith. Continue to do what you're doing and living this godly life because others around the world are seeing you. But do not give in to your human desires. He put it this way in verse 5 and 7 in chapter 1. Supplement your faith with a general provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for another. But we also see that in chapter 2 he shifts and he begins to talk about the false prophets and the false teachers that will be coming out. And he's saying, beware these people that will come to you with this false doctrine and heresy that will go against God. They are very clever in their teaching, and in their teaching, it will lead to their destruction. And what he wants them to know is that don't follow it because it is immoral, and that as a result, the truth will be slandered. And so in chapter 2, This is what we see in the first four verses that he's saying to them, beware of the false prophets. Several weeks ago, Pastor Debbie talked about the signs of the end of the age. And she talks about all the things that we are seeing around us. We see famine and we see wars. We see sin as rampant around the world. And we see that hearts have grown cold. And so she uh, talked about these are the things that are going on and we need to pay attention to them. In the age of grace, she said it was the sixth dispensation. And then in the age of grace, we also see the loosening of biblical standards. We see that in our discourse, our political discourse. We see it in our social media. We see it in our race relations. We see it in our uh, inequality and biblical injustice. We see it in the ripping apart of relationships. We also see it that the absolute truth, there is no absolute truth anymore. And it's all because of postmodernism as well as consumerism within the church. Pastor Mick last week talked about heaven, and we had a great celebration. I was envious of Pastor Mick because I knew what I would have to preach on today. And he was last week, he was real loose, and he told you, he said, I'm feeling real good. And everybody had a celebration, and everybody had fun, and we talked about heaven and how we're homesick and how we needed to run back home. But it's hard in this time, in this day and age, to even see heaven anymore because of all the things that are going on. But nevertheless, we should be homesick. And nevertheless, we should want to run home because this world is going to hell in a handbasket. Can I get an amen? Last week may have been a feel-good sermon. It may have been something that you can celebrate and you can be happy with as you walked out. But this week is a different type of sermon. I don't want to burden anybody. I don't want to be a person that's a killjoy. I don't want to have you walk out of here and you're like, oh, war is me. But I do want to preach the truth because that's what God has told me to do. And if you want to talk about heaven, you have to talk about hell. This topic is not an easy topic. I've been struggling with it for weeks now trying to figure out what to do and what to say. Because the topic of hell, there's a whole lot we can say about it. It can go as deep as we want to go and as shallow as we want to. But I believe that God has these words for us today. And so I, my brothers and sisters, will attempt to teach more so than preach. Because this topic is something that you need to understand. Often when we read over scriptures like we just read through, we seem to skim over those scriptures. We skim over those scriptures in many ways because we don't think that these scriptures pertain to us. They're not indicative of our lives and the lives that we live. We certainly don't think that we are rebellious against God like those that were the fallen angels. We don't feel like we're trying to be better than God, but we do rebel against God in many different ways. We rebel against God and our idols. We rebel against God by not doing what he is telling us to do through his spirit. He tells us to do many different things, and we say, no, God, not today. Can you please, can I put you on the shelf until I really need you? We don't believe that we are ungodly in our lifestyle, like during the Noah days. 
We feel like we're better than other people. We're not as bad as other people. We're actually, we don't commit the sins that other people commit. So we're actually good people. But sin is sin. There is no degree of sin. All sin cuts you off from God. We put degrees of sin and what's better sin and what's worse sin. We do that to make us feel better. So we may not have been as bad as the people in Noah's days, but we are bad. We may not feel like we are morally corrupt, unrighteous, sexual deviants or predators or even wicked like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. But everything now is fair game. There is a love for your own way of doing things. There is a love for money. There are many people that have yielded to the sin of pornography, sexual and emotional affairs in their marriages, open relationships. That's the new term now. In the, back in the day, it used to be swingers, physical and sexual abuse, molestation, phone sex, sexting, being a womanizer or a vixen, and many other things that I can say about the sin that we are in and the things that we do. So we say that we're not like Sodom and Gomorrah, but I beg to differ as I look at this word and as I look at the world and I compare the two and see that we are off kilter here. But note that Peter is encouraging the audience to stay the course and not be deceived by the false prophets. He is warning the believers that God's judgment and the results of that judgment is righteous as well as final. We, like them, sometimes do not come to the place where we understand that we need to repent. But if we are truly honest with ourselves, we do not spend much time on these words because we do not want to deal with the essence of what they're saying. We don't want to deal with God's wrath and his judgment. That's not fun, people. It's not. So we skim over these words because we don't want to deal with the fact that we are living sinful lives. We don't want to see ourselves, but if we look at ourselves, we cannot deny the sin that's in our lives. For we know that the wages of sin is death. And we are deserving of God's punishment and his wrath because he is a righteous God. This doesn't sit well with people, even Christians. It shows God in a way that we cannot imagine because we look at God as this loving God, this God that's supposed to give us everything that we want and everything that we need and keep us happy. It is the reason why we pray to him when we're feeling down. It's the reason why we pray to him when we're in need. It's the reason why we just want to be satisfied. We don't want to talk about wrath and certainly about God's judgment, and we don't want to be held accountable because we say this phrase a lot of times, who are we to judge anyone? But we cannot ask that question of God. Who is God to judge us? He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the I Am. He is the first and the last. He is the creator of everything. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is our everything. So the scriptures are quite clear. God can and will judge us. But most importantly, when we look at these scriptures, it answers a question that some of us don't even want to deal with, and that is, is hell real? My answer is, hell yeah, hell is real. <laughs> now, I want to know how many focus on the fact that I use hell in the sentence and not the fact that hell is real. That's what you really need to be focused on, that hell is real. We know this in the subconscious because we use the word many different times. We tell people to go there. We tell people to get the H out of here. We tell people when we're mad that we'll beat the H out of them. We tell people during the summer months, it's hottest out here. So we know the negative parts of that. We're not fooling anybody. 
we very rarely use it in a positive sense. We very rarely use it like, I'm having a hell of a time here tonight. Because we know the negative connotation of the word hell. Unfortunately, however, hell is not real for some people. Many do not believe in devils, demon possession, and they don't believe in demon oppression, and they don't believe in spiritual warfare. And as a result, they cannot believe in hell. But I would use this quote from a classic movie, one of my favorite movies, The Usual Suspect. When one of the characters in there says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. Ladies and gentlemen, if the devil, if you don't believe that the devil exists, then you cannot believe that hell exists because they go hand in hand. Hell is the place. I want to tell you that hell is a place, the final destination for the devil, the beast, and the false prophets, and any of those people who reject Christ. Let's be clear about that. The devil is on his job to fool us. In Matthew 25, it says, but when the Son of Man comes to his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as Shepherds separate the sheep from the goat. He will place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of this world. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, and the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Now, even though I, I pointed to the right and to the left, I'm not trying to call anybody out. But if you said, ouch, up under your breath, amen. We see that in the earlier verses is a clear indication of God, of sin, and God's response to this. We read that God's response to this is righteous as well as final, as I said before. We know that hell is connected to the judgment of God. It is very clear. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about that. But what is hell exactly? Hell is the general place denoted as the place for the wicked, where they will receive punishment. Hell, in various instances in the Bible, also referred to the grave or the places of disembodied spirits. But it doesn't imply whether they're happy or unhappy. It's just that that's where they are. Now, there are three words that are used for hell throughout the Bible. One is Sheol. It's an Old Testament term that, re that refers to the place of the dead. Not the grave, but the place where those who have departed from this earth are now at. It speaks to the future allotment of doom. Let me share some scriptures with you. Psalm 16.10, it says, No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety, for you, have not uh, you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You brought me from the grave, up from the grave, O Lord. You kept me from falling into the pit of death, Psalms 33. In a term that is also used for the righteous and the wicked, it says in Psalms 28.3, it says, Do not drag me away with the wicked with those who do evil, those who speak friendly words to their neighbors, watch out, while planning evil in their hearts. Hades is the second term that's used throughout the Bible. It's a New Testament term that is similar and as comprehensive as Sheol in reference to hell. It refers to the underworld or the region of the departed. It is an intermediate state between death and the resurrection. We know that because in the Bible in Luke 16, 22 to 24, it says this. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham in a heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried. And he went to the place of the dead, an immediate place. 
There in torment he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. So we see in this that the story of Lazarus is talking about hell. It's talking about Hades. It's talking about a place that he's in between. Right? And we are aware that he has memories. He has feelings. He understands where he was and where he is now. But he also understands that he can't move from his place and so there is no hope. So we understand that Hades is that place that's in between and we understand that there is a place and this is another term that's used when we talk about hell. The third term is Gehenna. Stay with me a little bit. I know this is a little bit technical, but you gotta know what we're talking about when you're reading it in the Bible. Gehenna is the Valley of Hinnom, a place where Jewish apostasy, meaning religious abandonment, occurs and was celebrated. It was converted by King Josiah in the place of abomination where dead bodies were thrown in and burned. It became symbolic of hell. Jesus talked about this city many times in reference to hell to say this is what it's going to be like. So that they had a visual and an understanding of what hell would be for them. We know that this place became symbolic of that and it was the abode of the lost spirits. Everyone used the word, every time the word was used in the the New Testament, it was translated as hell. It should be noted in the Bible that there are other terms that have been used throughout the Bible that also are symbolic of hell, like unquenchable fires, black darkness, furnace of fire, fire and brimstone, the smoke of their torment, the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. All of these terms have been used for hell. Whether you knew it or not, it is there. Therefore, God's holy word is clear. There is a such thing as hell and there is punishment for the wicked. Now, it's important to know that there are some scholars, there are some preachers and teachers and theologians that have moved away from the traditional view of hell and have come to a point of having an alternative view of that, and that is annihilationism and universalism. These two terms are very key, and I'm going over this because I guarantee you, you will come into contact with some people that actually believe this. So it's really important that you understand this. When we talk about annihilationism, what they're saying is is that because we as human beings are immortal, when we die and we are unrepentant and unsaved, we just die and that's it. There's nothing else. But they have an alternative to this that said, or you die and then you're resurrected, then you're judged, and then you're sent to hell for a period of time to be punished. And then after that period of time, God snuffs you out. This view looks at it in the sense of saying that How can a loving God, a God that loves us, how can he send us to hell? How can he send us to this place where there is is torment that's just unending, unquenchable, that is just punishment for no reason that I can imagine. That's what we all say. It's not worth all of that. But Angelican Winham in his book, Facing Hell, stated this, the unending torment in his mind is sadistic and unjust. They focus on words like destruction and perish and death and say that these words are absolute. But they don't keep in context what the words can actually mean. Like when we use the word and say when there's a tornado that comes in and destroys something, and we say there was mass destruction in New Orleans, we don't mean that New Orleans was completely destroyed, but we use the word. 
When we say someone has perished, there is a spiritual aspect of that that says perish meaning they are lost. When we use, even when we use the word death and we say, hey, we were once dead in our trespasses and sin, we don't actually mean that we were actually dead. We were just dead spiritually. So when they talk about these words and say they're using it in an absolute, in an absolute way, they're wrong in that. Princeton speak, uh, Sprinkles in a book he co-authored with Francis Chan, get this, Erasing Hell, states that he would not be surprised if annihilationism is not the prominent doctrine that's being used for hell in the next 10 or 15 years, even among conservative evangelical Christians. The concept is dangerous because there is no penalty for sin. What they're essentially saying is, is that regardless of what the Bible says, that there will be forever torment, what they're saying is, is that no, that's only temporary. You get a slap on the wrist and then boom, you're done. That's what they're saying. Who wouldn't want to believe this? What sinner out there wouldn't want to embrace this? What person out there that doesn't believe in God would not run to this concept? Universalism believes that love wins. When everything is said and done, love wins. Everybody at one point in time will turn, that are going this way, will turn and run back to God because love wins in the very end. It focuses on the love of God melting the heart of the unrepentant sinner to a point that even as bad as they are, they will turn back to God and God will love them because love conquers all. In the end, God will forgive and adopt all people, all people, perhaps even after a limited time in punishment in hell. There's one basic problem with universalism, though, is the repentance part. They believe that if a person does not repent before death, that they will have an opportunity to repent after death. There is nothing in the Bible that supports that. That is a lie from the devil. That's a lie from the pit of hell. We know that when resurrected, there will be judgment. There will be no time for repentance. There will be judgment. These theories surmise that even if hell exists, that ultimately the, it will be vacant and will have no punishment for anyone. So someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, Hitler, Helter Skelter, Charles Manson, these, uh, these unrepentant people at one time or another through this process of universalism as well as annihilationism will not be punished for their sins. However, if life in heaven is eternal, then punishment in hell has to be internal. You can't have one with the other. You can't promote that life, everlasting life and reward in heaven is all good, but then say in hell, that punishment is not everlasting, it's only limited. It does not make sense. We also know that these principles are thought are based upon the thought of sending, of God sending someone to hell. Let me be clear about this. God sends no one to hell. It's the people and their decisions that send them to hell. In fact, when a person has to go on his way to hell, his or her way to hell, they literally have to step over Christ in order to get to hell. We need to understand that we may think that we're going through hell. We may think because we lost our jobs that we're going through hell, that because we're homeless and without food, we are, you know, going through hell, that because we got divorced or we had separated from our loved ones or our kids are going crazy, that we are going through hell, that we are processing the death of a loved one, we're going through hell. Some people thought when they went through COVID, it was hell. People think that I'm going through hell because my bad decisions and my failures are now catching up with us. But theologian Alan Gore says it in this way, there is every reason to expect that the wicked in hell to suffer great bodily pains there. 
This suffering will take place from the inside out, as it were. They will suffer the natural consequences of rejecting God and his goodness towards them, in which they will experience the pain of complete abandonment, remorse, unmingled with comfort, and relentless torment of their own consciences, which will burn forever, but never be consumed. We go through these tough situations that I mentioned earlier, and you think that you're going through hell. But I want to say one thing, in everything that you're going through in life, God is still there with you. He is right beside you. But be clear, my brothers and sisters, in hell, God will not be there. He will not be with you in hell, guaranteed. You see, hell demonstrates the presence of God removed, the state of final separation from God where there is no love, there is no peace, there is no light, there is no pleasure, there is no fulfillment. Daniel 12, 2 says, many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will raise up, will be raised up, some to everlasting life and shame and to everlasting disgrace. Everlasting, not temporal, not for a season. Everlasting. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, 9, it says this, When the Lord Jesus appeared from heaven, he will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing down judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. So, my brothers and sisters, there is a hell, but if you still don't believe me, let me ask you this one question. Why would Jesus die for us? Why would God give his only begotten son for us if there was no hell? If there is no hell, Jesus dying is, it was a waste of time. Let me put it to you this way. We've all been in COVID for this last two years. And we know that over 900,000 people have died. We know that we have been trying to find a world vaccine to fight this virus. And not just for the United States of America, but for everyone. We know that we've been trying to do this over and over again, and we have these different uh, variations of the COVID virus that happen. But what about if all they needed was a certain type of blood type? And what if that certain type of blood type, that pure blood type, your child had that particular blood type? No one else but your child did. And what about if they came to you and said, hey, listen, we need some of the blood in order to create this virus. I mean, this, uh, this vaccine. And you said, okay, fine. And then they come back to you later and say, you know what, we're sorry. We don't need some blood. We need all the blood of your child. And as you sit there and you wrestle with that, you're seeing the people looking at your child and now they're looking at it, your child as a specimen. They're not looking at your child like they're human anymore. You have people running back and forth trying to do their job, trying to save themselves, and your child is no longer your child, but something to solve the world's problem, and there's no emotion, no feeling, no love, nothing is being exhibited there. Who, under the sound of my voice, will give up their only child for this world? Who? I'm gonna be honest. I will struggle there. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be obedient, but I don't know if I would do it. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that so whoever believed would not perish, but have everlasting life. We need to understand that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need to understand that it's through his grace that we are redeemed and that we are justified in, the, in, in God's sight. We need to understand that this is only because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Somebody should be celebrating. This right here is the crust of the gospel. Hearing these words and knowing what we need, what we know now, what should we do? I want to say seek God and stay in him, my point number one. Seek God and stay in him. Make the right decision. I'm not just saying this for religious activity. I'm saying that this is a heart deal. You have to seek God with your whole heart, open to him and the move of his spirit to understand what God wants you to do. And the Bible outlines this, and I'm going to go through a little exercise with you. As in my study, I pulled together some scriptures that lays out the pathway for you that makes it real clear what you need to do. Because some of you will have a hard decision to make before we leave this service. I'm not going to read, this, I'm not going to read where the scripture is coming from. I'm just going to read it like a story. And it's going to be shown up here on the screen. Starting with Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Now, everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? He replied, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom, for many will try to enter but will fail. When the master of the house was locked, has locked the door, it will be too late. You will stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and his gate is wide for many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few will ever find it. Because of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. Again, we are reminded of false prophets. We are reminded of people that are seeking your demise. We are reminded of people that have nothing good for you in life. And in the end, if you don't make the right decision, your path is eternal punishment in hell. You know, the steps up to heaven may be hard and long, but to slide down into hell is easy and quick. So as you ponder this, as you listen to my words, as you consider the words that were on the screen, I want to remind you of... Uh, is. I have a book that's called Screwtape Letters, and it's a great book that I want to share with you in which it's about two devils that are having a conversation with one another, an uncle and a nephew. And the uncle is telling the nephew everything that he needs to do to get the human subject to reject God, to sin, and to what? Eventually end up in hell. And these are his words, not my words. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slopes, the soft underfoot, without sudden turning, without milestones, without signposts. You see, we are warring against principalities. We're warring against spiritual warfare, demonic oppression and influence, and we walk around and we are not aware of this. And because of that, we don't understand that there is a devil and there is a hell. And Quite frankly, if we walk around like that as believers, we're just being naive. For the unbelievers, there's a risk in not understanding this. And the question is, is it worth the risk? This brings me to the second point. Spread the gospel. Evangelize. That's what we should do. We should spread the gospel to people that do not know the gospel. 
C.S. Lewis says it like this, I would love to discard the doctrine of hell, but if Christianity is the story of reality, then we can't pick and choose which bit of reality to believe and which to reject. We cannot be up under a disillusion that we don't preach the gospel and that we don't evangelize the people. It is not us for us to decide when we preach and when we don't preach based upon whether we're accepted or rejected, whether we're persecuted or rewarded. Regardless of the situations, we are to do as my brother Paul says, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teachings. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase out the myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of the suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry that you are commanded to do. We have been given a mandate by God to preach the gospel, to make disciples, regardless of where it is, regardless of what part of the world it is, we are commanded to do that. And not just the people that look like us, to everybody, those who do not look like us. Let us admit, sometimes we are afraid at what people may say and what people may think. But I want to say to you, you need to be more afraid about what God thinks and what God will do. Because he says in Matthew 10, he says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch you and they cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can deliver both soul and body in hell. Which brings me to my last point. What are we to do? Surrender. Give your life to Christ. In the ninth verse of this text, it says this. So you see the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their, their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. We have been rescued because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Let's be clear about that. We know that there are false teachers out there. We know that there are false doctrine out there. We know that there's a division in the body of Christ. And what I'm saying to you is, is that in this whole sermon, I'm not trying to judge anybody. I don't have a heaven or hell to put any of you. However, pay attention to God's word. Because God's word says this, as I'm coming to a close. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurities, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissension, division, evil, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like this. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living this sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. In Hebrews 10, 21 to 30, it says, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. When Christ was on the cross, on the skull, and he had two thieves that are on either side of him. One ridiculed him. One challenged him and said, if you be the son of God, then why don't you rescue yourself and while you had to rescue me as well. There was another one that was a little bit more humbler. And that one said, do you not fear God even though you are about to die? We deserve death, but this one has done nothing, referring to Jesus. And he turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, will you come into your kingdom? Will you remember me? And Jesus said, on this day, you will be with me in paradise. This sermon message is not to scare anybody. This is not about hell and brimstone. 
This is about the truth of the gospel and the fact that we have to deal with the reality of hell and we have to make decisions based upon that. There are some of you under the sound of my voice that you know where you're going. You know where you're going. Paula, you can come on out. You know where you are going. But there are some under the sound of my voice you don't know. You don't know if you died tomorrow where you would be. You don't know what it's going to look like even when you walk outside this door. Because tomorrow's not promising anybody. Let me share this one brief story with you. When I came to Christ, I was sitting with my father on Mother's Day to see my grandmother, Madeira. I was there to see her, not there to hear the word. And I sat there and I heard the altar call. And I had this feeling that was going on inside of my, I never experienced. It was just bubbling all in me and something was telling me to get up. And I leaned over to my father and I said, Dad, I think I'm going to get up. And he said, son, wait a minute, let's talk about it. I'll tell you all about it and you can do it next week. And my personality at that time is I like to know answers before I even do something. So I was like, okay, dad, I'll just sit down and we'll do it next week. But two minutes later, I said, dad, I gotta go. And I popped up and I walked down that aisle. And I have never, ever, ever looked back. Never look back. I'm not saying that my father was being evil, but I am saying that Satan used my dad to, disturb, to deter me from getting up. A good man was being influenced, and then I heard exactly what I had to hear in order to stay seated. But the Holy Spirit, which raised Jesus from the grave, raised me up out of my seat. And so there are some here under the sound of my voice right now that you're struggling. You heard about heaven last week. You're hearing about hell this week and you're struggling. You're trying to figure it out. And you have something on this side saying, don't get up, don't listen to him, tune him out. And you have something over on this side that's saying, listen to him, he's talking to you. I want to give those people the opportunity to come to this altar right now. I want to give you the opportunity to turn your life over to Christ, to make the decision of whether you're going to heaven or hell. Not my words, not trying to scare you, but if the Holy Spirit is working in you right now and you're scared, don't be scared. If you got to know all the answers, you don't need to know all the answers. God knows all the answers. Trust Him. This is an opportunity for you to change your life and be better than what you ever thought you can be. So I'm going to say, won't you come? Won't you come now? Come to the altar and talk to God. Turn your life over to Him. Listen to that force, that power, that spirit that's in you to surrender. Because, folks, hell is real. I've done my job, I've sounded the trumpet. And because I've sounded the trumpet, whatever happens is not on me, it's on you. Again, tomorrow's not promised. We're not in control of that. Only thing that counts right now is right now, today, this second. So I'm going to give you a couple more seconds, maybe a minute, for you to wrestle with that and come to the place of whether you're going to come to the altar. And if you don't, it's okay. It's okay. Because today may not be your day. But maybe the only thing that I did was plant a seed and somebody else will water it 
and put some sunshine on it, and somebody else will reap that harvest. So, if everybody can close their eyes, there may be some people that are shy. They don't, they're not feeling brave today, and this will only take 30 seconds. If you want to commit your life to Christ, and you just don't have the strength to come up here, just stand. Nobody's going to see you. I'm the only person that's going to see you. If there is a person here, please stand. Please stand so that we can pray for you. Well, Lord, we believe in faith that everyone that is standing and not standing, that your word has gone forth and has been planted in fertile ground. We ask you, Lord, that you will have your way and that your spirit will take control. We pray, Lord, that as that seed germinates, Lord, that it will begin to bear good fruit. And we pray, Lord, for the boldness of Christ to be in each and every person that's standing here today, that at some time they can come forth and say, Lord, take control of my life. So, Lord, we believe this in faith and know it to be true. We ask these in all blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.